Section 16 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 2, Transactions in Scotland, Brittany, and Guienne, Part 2. And now Charles and his allies, finding it hopeless to persist, drew off from the siege of Ennebon and invested Auré, which they reduced by famine. Vannes was their next trophy, and there the French marshal, Louis of Spain, who was far more of a sea captain than a general, embarked his troops and sailed away for Camperlou in Bretagne Bretonante, or Western Brittany, where landing, he ravaged the country and laded his ships with spoil. Sir W. Manny pursued by land and sea, attacked the marauders, forced them to disgorge their plunder, and chased them away in their ships. Louis himself narrowly escaping capture. Robert of Artois was now on his way with an English fleet to Brittany. Louis of Spain intercepted it near Guernsey, and a doubtful engagement took place, which was broken off by the coming of the night, during which a storm arose and scattered the fleets. But the English managed ere long to reach the Breton shore and join the Countess and Sir Walter in the recapture of Vannes. Within a few days, however, the French again laid siege to Vannes, and the ill-starred d'Artois received a wound which obliged him to abandon the campaign and retire to England, where he shortly afterwards ended his life. King Edward himself followed close upon d'Artois with another invading force from England, and dividing his army into three detachments, laid siege at once to Rennes, Vannes, and Nantes, but hearing that the Duke of Normandy was advancing to reinforce Charles of Blois, he concentrated and entrenched his forces under the walls of Vannes. All through the worst of a very severe winter, with soldiers mutinying, horses dying, and supplies running short, the two armies lay encamped within sight of one another, till at length in January 1343 two cardinals arrived from Clement VI who had succeeded to the papal throne, to endeavor to bring about a peace. A truce was agreed upon at Mal-Etois to last till Michaelmas. The Scots, the Flemings, the Ainalters, and the two contending parties in Brittany were to be included in the truce, and the elder de Montfort was to be set at liberty. The French king evaded the stipulation for the release of de Montfort, but two years later the prisoner managed to escape in disguise from the Louvre, visited and did homage to Edward in England, and rejoined his wife at Ennebon, where, however, he soon afterwards died, appointing the English king guardian of the rights of his son. Thus ended Edward's third inglorious and unprofitable French campaign. The convention of Maletois was a truce only, not a peace. Whether it should become such or not was a question which Edward thought it politic to reserve for the decision of his parliament. That body assembled at Westminster in the spring of 1343. Though we may infer from a notice in the parliamentary rolls, 2.127, that the division of parliament into two houses, lords and commons, took place two years earlier. This session is remarkable as the first occasion in which that separation is clearly apparent. It formed no part of the original plan of Edward I, according to which clergy, barons, knights, and burgesses all deliberated, voted, and made grants independently. The grants, 
that is, the prelates and barons, the latter about forty in number, held their sitting in the white chamber, subsequently called the court of requests. The knights of the shires and the burgesses representing the towns sat together in the painted chamber. The members of the commons at this time numbered about two hundred and fifty, and were paid for their attendance in Parliament by a tax levied on the places which they represented, the knights receiving four shillings a day, and the burgesses two shillings. For payment to the members of the commons chamber was then the rule, and was not in fact abolished till the eighteenth century. On this occasion the two houses each gave a separate opinion in favor of peace, but undertook to support the king loyally and liberally in maintaining his quarrel if peace could not be had on fair terms. It was agreed, however, that commissioners to arrange the conditions of peace should lay their proposals before the Pope, under protest that they were submitted to him, not as a dictator or judge, but as a common friend, extra judicialiter et amicabiliter. This precaution was owing to the jealousy felt at this time in England of the Pope's aggressive and encroaching policy. During the whole of Edward III's reign, the attitude of the nation at large and of the prelates, no less than of the temporal peers, was that of watchful and determined resistance to papal interference. This Westminster Parliament petitioned for the redress of a grievance to which Englishmen were constantly obliged to submit, namely, the occupation by non-resident foreigners, provisors, as they were called, of livings and other ecclesiastical offices in England under the nomination and appointment of the Pope. Edward, who had before complained personally to his holiness of these abuses, now wrote still more urgently. But as letters containing secret orders from Avignon to the clergy were still constantly coming into England, he found it necessary to issue mandates a few months later, forbidding any person to carry into England bulls or documents from the Pope appointing to any ecclesiastical office beneath the dignity of a bishop. The disputes about these provisors were carried on all through Edward's reign. The first beginnings of the storm, which after gathering strength for two centuries, at length broke out with only too destructive violence in the Great Reformation. As for the peace negotiations, however, Edward wrote courteously to Clement VI, agreeing to the prolongation of the truce, and difficult as it is to believe that he had any definite policy at all, it may be safely assumed that in his apparent readiness to negotiate, he wished either to put the French king in the wrong, or to gain time for maturing his warlike preparations. Whatever may have been his ultimate designs upon the French crown, it appears certain that he had no intention of yielding up a tittle of his claim to the absolute sovereignty of Guienne, whereas Philip had determined that Edward should never hold a foot of land in France except as a vassal. No wonder, therefore, that the ambassadors who met before the Pope failed to arrive at any mutual agreement. No wonder that the English king, on the return of his commissioners, in complete uncertainty as to the future, waiting for the leading of circumstances, and constantly receiving intelligence of new aggressions in Guienne and threats of invasion of England, should have continued to prepare for war, by strengthening the defenses of the country, and by acquiring fresh alliances and fresh supplies of arms, ships, and men, 
while all the time he kept alive the formal negotiations for peace. In this way, a year and a half was passed, and it was not till the midsummer of 1345 that Edward struck the first blow. In this interval, in the year 1343, Edward's friend, the Earl of Salisbury, was crowned King of the Isle of Man, and Edward of Woodstock created Prince of Wales. On the first day of the January following, King Edward proclaimed a round table or great international tournament in honor of King Arthur at Windsor, and shortly afterwards gave orders for the erection of a house called the Round Table, the present Round Tower of Windsor Castle, in which the knights attending the jousts should banquet. He issued authority to the architect and the head bricklayer to impress as many artisans as they might require in certain counties to carry out the work which cost him a hundred pounds a week, a large sum for those days. But Edward seems to have been now in no want of money, for about the same time we find a commission sent to Germany once more to redeem the great crown from out of pawn. Among other preparations for war, he resorted to the very doubtful expedient of forbidding bullion and the precious metals in any shape from being carried out of the country. He also prohibited the export of horses above the value of sixty shillings, required all persons having forty acres of land to take up the military order of knighthood, and issued orders that no knight or man-at-arms should leave the country without his permission. Of the friendship of the Flemings he had every reason to feel secure, but in 1345, on the eve of the great effort which he was about to make, he thought it prudent to confer with van Artevelde and the burgomasters, and ascertain their feelings toward him. Van Artevelde had ruled his countrymen with a wisdom and sagacity which even his detractors admit for nine years, but just three months before the visit of Edward, a trade crisis had occurred, which ended in a bloody struggle at Ghent in which five hundred operatives were killed. The course which the Rouvert took on this occasion in supporting the small towns and their resistance to the monopoly of the cities had drawn upon him the enmity of the master manufacturers of Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, while he was at the same time at issue with the party whose cause he had espoused, because they were ready to throw themselves into the arms of the Count of Flanders. At this juncture Edward arrived. The conference took place in the harbour of Slush, where Edward received the burgomasters on board his great ship Catherine, he endeavoured to persuade them formally to depose their count and to receive the Prince of Wales as Duke of Flanders. Van Artevelde embraced this project warmly, and during the month which the burgomasters took to lay the question before the General Assembly of the people of Ghent, he visited the towns of Ypres and Bruges, and spared no exertions to induce the citizens to accede to King Edward's proposal. Meanwhile, his enemies at Ghent encouraged, as it is said, by the Duke of Brabant, who had rejected Edward's overtures, and wished to ally himself with the Count of Flanders instead, incited the populace against their Rouvert, who, on his return to the capital, was basely and ungratefully murdered in his own city by the people whom he had ruled so well and wisely. However much or little as Edward may have felt the assassination of his friend, the event in no way interfered with his policy. 
he suffered his wrath to be appeased by a representation from the citizens of Ypres and Bouges that they had no share in the murder, which indeed they deeply regretted. The project of making the Prince of Wales Duke of Flanders is no more heard of, but Edward published an account of his visit, in which, without any allusion to von Arteveld's death, he reports that the Flemings were never firmer in fidelity to us. A year elapsed after this conference before the king took the field in person, but already early in the summer of 1345 the Earl of Derby, son and heir of the Earl of Lancaster, had sailed for Guienne. For the Gascon barons who attended the round table had represented to the king that his good country of Guienne and his good friends and his good city of Bordeaux were badly comforted and supported and besought him to send over a captain with an army capable of making head against the aggressions of the French, which even in times of nominal truce had never wholly ceased. Edward had thus a just excuse for sending a strong force into the south of France, at the same time that he was organizing a second invasion of that country by way of Brittany, where he had a friend in the Countess of Montfort, whose still remaining territory afforded him a safe landing-place and basis of operations on the west. The Earl of Northampton sailed at the head of this expedition about the same time that the Earl of Derby took the command in Guienne, but with the exception of a few unimportant captures, he accomplished nothing worthy of record till he was recalled to join the third army of invasion commanded by the king in person. The movements of the Earl of Derby were more important. He landed at Bayonne with some three thousand men and marched to Bordeaux, where, having been reinforced by the troops of the province, he took the field against the French who had entrenched themselves strongly at Bergerac on the Dordogne. At the suggestion of Sir Walter Manny, who accompanied this expedition, he made a sudden and desperate attack on the town and captured it almost by surprise. He then overran Perigord and the Agenois, scarcely encountering any serious opposition, and safely withdrew with his spoils into Bordeaux. Meanwhile, the French had not been inactive. They did not indeed venture to meet the English in the open field, but they had put the country still spared by the invaders into a state of defense. Philip had entrusted the arming of Languedoc to his son, the Duke of Normandy, who succeeded so well in rousing the nobility and levying troops that when the French king visited his son's headquarters at Angoulême in September, he found a large army massed there, observing the motions of the English from a safe distance, till the Earl of Derby withdrew into winter quarters. But as soon as they heard that he was laid up in Bordeaux, the French, notwithstanding the lateness of the season, took the field in great force and laid siege to Auberach. The garrison, who were unprepared for defending the place against an attack conducted by an army of ten thousand men armed with the most formidable engines of war, sent off a page to the Earl of Derby for help. The besiegers caught the poor boy and hurled him back from one of their catapults over the wall into the town. News did reach the Earl of the distress of the garrison, but it reached him so late that there was no time to collect such a body of troops as might enable him to raise the siege. He started, however, with Sir Walter Manny at the head of three hundred lances and six hundred archers, 
and undismayed by the desperate odds against him, advanced under cover of a wood upon the enemy's camp, stole upon them while at supper, and dealt such terrible slaughter among the startled and unarmed host of the besiegers that all who could were glad to save themselves by flight. After this daring and successful action, the earl overran the country, taking Angoulême and many other strong fortresses without experiencing a reverse, and again retired into winter quarters. In the spring, when the armies took the field anew, the Duke of Normandy found himself at the head of one hundred thousand men at Toulouse, and this time departing from his policy of inaction, laid siege to the fortresses which had lately been taken by the Earl of Derby. Angoulême was garrisoned by the English under John of Norwich, who, seeing that defence was hopeless and surrender inevitable, proposed to the Duke that, as the following day was the feast of the purification of the Virgin, a truce should be observed by both armies, neither molesting the other for four and twenty hours. The Duke agreed, and early on that Candlemas morning, Sir John called together his men, trussed up bag and baggage, and marched out of the city in good order into the midst of the French camp. The Frenchmen flew to arms, but Sir John pleaded the Duke's pledged word that neither army should molest the other for that day. The Duke saw that he had been overreached, but allowed the English to depart in safety, and indeed it was in reliance on his well-known honour that Sir John made this venture, for the Duke had already gained the character for scrupulous veracity which he maintained so well when King of France, and to him was attributed the golden sentence that if faith and truth were banished from among the rest of mankind, they ought to be found in the mouth of kings and princes. Upon the withdrawal of John of Norwich, Angoulême surrendered to the duke, who then about the beginning of May sat down to the famous siege of Aiguillon, hereafter to be described. End of section 16